Welcome to How We Run, a podcast where we examine how nonprofits become successful. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lapacher, founder of Good Ways, Inc. Trent, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Julie, and I hope you have a a wonderful time. Do you have family coming in? Or are you going to spend it with your, your kids? No, sadly, my daughter, who is a sophomore at college in Maine, is not coming home. So it's going to be our first Thanksgiving ever without her. But, but we will have my son and we have a lot of high school basketball on the agenda because he plays and that's a week when they like to play high school basketball. Oh, well, you have a sad Thanksgiving a little bit because you won't have your daughter. Well, let's fill that void with some um, clips from podcasts then. How about? That is simply the worst transition <laughs> I've ever heard in my entire life. But I, hope, but I hope people out there on the road are saying, yes, absolutely. What better way to take a break than to just really get into the nuts and bolts of how to run a 501c3? We've done a lot of episodes this fall, and the people that we've gotten to talk to are so great. And I've learned something from every single episode, but I want to know maybe some of your highlights. I mean, I think one of the things I've just been blown away by, and it just sounds so stupid, but it, it's just how modest all of these leaders have been. We invite these people on because they're really good at their jobs. And every time we try to tell them that they're really good at their jobs, they decline it, they defer it, and they give all of the credit to their staffs. And we've just seen that over and over again, from Tony Brown to, to Mark Friedman, John Hosong, obviously Leslie Ito recently, who just refuses to take any credit for anything under any circumstances. Leslie was adamant that she didn't have a big vision for her organization, yet would lay out visionary statements. Here's Leslie Ito from season four, episode nine. Yeah, I just recently read an article about how museum directors are hired and expected to come in with this big vision and share this big vision with everybody. And actually, I I wouldn't say I don't have a big vision, but I think the way that I deliver that big vision is maybe not what the field expects. My big vision is to create sustainable organizations and how we get there are very small, incremental, strategic and intentional steps. That's the big vision. If you're a board member sitting and waiting for a big vision, you may miss it because it's happening on a day-to-day level and it's both operational and strategic, yes, it would be much easier to lead an organization that just did studio teaching, but I love all of the interconnections that we can make. I've been thinking about the big idea, but all I can think about are these tiny little incremental steps. I think that's my big idea. And some of the tiny steps are definitely around cultural equity is what is really on my mind in terms of training staff and board, creating space for really honest and courageous conversations, the work, the journey that we're on to create cultural equity within our organization is not the work of one person or one committee, but it needs to be the work 
of each one of us on staff and board and and each person committing to what they can do within their own little universe to create a more welcoming, more accessible, um, more relevant art experience for all of the people that that come into contact with us and the people that we are anticipating and you know want to connect with. She said the best when she sang strategy and a vision to me is a series of small incremental steps. But yes, agreed. Everyone is so humble. Yeah, but if Leslie or, or the others were in the for-profit sector, they would write a book about their 10 management techniques for saving the world or something and take all the credit and pat themselves on the back. But yet these exceptional leaders are trying to convince us on our show about nonprofit leadership that they're not really leaders. And it's, it's mildly refreshing and slightly insane because these are great leaders doing great things under, as we know, the worst circumstances that you know, this country has seen in a really long time. And, and they've steered their organizations to, to, to good success and, and they refuse to take any credit. I saw that the most when you were talking to Tony Brown and he was talking about leading like a coach. And, yeah, Tony yeah. is an old coach. He's, a, he's, an, old, he's an old sports coach yeah. and, and he's running a multi-million dollar organization and he's acting like he just has to get his players in the right places so that they can succeed. And here's Tony Brown from season four, episode two. My staff were starting to feel burnt out. They were starting to feel supported morally, but not supported practically. And we were growing rapidly. And I was asking for more and more, and I was adding more and more people. And I wasn't able to really go deep with any one of them. And that was a problem because then what ended up happening was that anytime big decisions needed to be made, they were always coming back to me to make the big decision. And I realized, oh my goodness, I didn't create enough opportunity for them to grow to where they had the confidence to make those decisions. They didn't have clear policies and guidelines by which to measure making uh, the best decision possible that they could make. And in a way, as much as I was trying to advance us further faster, I actually probably stunted a little bit of the quality of growth that we could have. You and I are both former ball coaches but you just have to give the kid the ball and tell him to go pitch you can wrap your arm around him in the dugout all day long but but sometimes you just have to give him the ball and, and send him out to the mound that's right and then what they would tell me is back is that athlete would say hey look but you, you got to show me the mechanics of how to pitch like you've got to spend some time and give me the fundamentals and i was missing that part i think as we grew rapidly right there weren't enough trainers to help these guys and gals be game ready <laughs> and so uh, it's been neat to build out that infrastructure in more recent times. Uh, That's and I've seen some really great results. I thought that was so telling. Yeah. Sometimes you have to put them out there and let them miss a shot because when you really need them, they're going to have that experience. So mm -hmm. that was terrific. You've come back to that theme of being humble. One thing that I've noticed from a lot of different guests is just maybe because of necessity, I'm starting to notice a trend of less planning and more doing, you know, adapting. We've talked to a couple of organizations, as you've pointed out, that have gotten into food distribution because of the pandemic. And they've all said something to the effect of, that's just what our community needed. We just had to do that. And I think that there is some planning. I don't mean to say, wake up in the morning, have an idea and go get it done. You can have a good idea of where you're going, but just try it. 
it's more difficult than it sounds though, right? I know at the philanthropy side, on the foundation side, we're always railing against mission creep. We're always telling organizations, stay in your lane, do what you do and, and don't go over there because that's not what you do. And yet we've heard from several good leaders who have said, we had an obligation to do something different. And we did not have the ability to sit around and put a, together a strategic plan or some sort of 10 point blueprint for how we're going to do this. They'd had to trust their gut and they had to just implement programs on the fly. And we heard about, we heard that from Zhang Ho at, at KYCC. Let's take a listen to Zhang Ho's song from season four, episode five. You know, when everything stopped, our leadership group got together and we were thinking, what can we do right now for us to support the community? And I think we had a general consensus that we wanted to help the seniors because they're the one who was suffering the most at that time. They couldn't go out, they didn't have the transportation, and we didn't have the capacity to serve whole Koreatown. But we thought that it was a good opportunity for us to serve the seniors from our low-income housing programs that we have. We have close to over 200 families that we're serving right now, eight low-income senior housing. So we wanted to target our senior housing families and we could deliver essential items and meal for the next uh, four months or so. So that program started in April and it ended close to last September or so. But there was about close to 12,000 meals and essential items. And we really got, we had an opportunity to get even closer to our clients during that time. We heard it obviously with, with some of the fundraisers with Roger Castle and Alexis Madrid, where they, they just had to throw out the playbook of, we, we have to figure out ways to keep these donors in house. We have to figure out ways to do virtual events. And we just have to, we have to do things differently. And you're going to have to trust us that we know what we're doing and that we've been around for a little while. And not just that we're doing something because it sounds good. And we saw it at a seminar somewhere. There, there is great value in this experience. And I think that's one of the things that we've gained from many of our guests is that their experience prepared them for when things got difficult. Yeah, I think that Alexis and Roger are really good examples of organizations that saw a moment in time and said, if not now, when? Let's go try something. So with Alexis, that the Painted Turtle just really saying, we've got to do a virtual event. We have no other options right now. And when you hear her talk about what they did, she just started having the conversations with people and saying, here's, I think what we're going to end up doing, would you be into this? And it was almost building the plan along with the supporters. And then with Roger talking about how much storytelling his small staff is able to do with just elbow grease and iPhone and getting the stories of the people they serve out there and how much that's paid off. Here's a Roger Castle from season four, episode three. Good luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And that's really what happened with the pandemic. We already had increased our fundraising over the past four years, about 35%. Uh, during the pandemic, of course, with all the awareness from the emergency drive through distributions, we acquired more donors than we have acquired in the last eight years. So our strategy is content. So we try to capitalize on great stories, impact stories, and then also getting that free media, which we did well before the pandemic. People will say, well, how do you get stories about people getting food? Well, we go to distributions. It's not easy. You have to walk up to people and ask them to tell their story about being food insecure. You get a lot of interviews that don't work out. So it's really rolling up your sleeves and going to these distributions and, and getting stories. And we just are very nimble about getting these things out. One of the things uh, one of my teammates said the other day was the team was a little spoiled because we got approvals through so quickly. 
And so I don't want to be a block in the process for the content. I've seen other organizations where a one direct mail letter at the end of the year takes four months because you have nine people that have to weigh in on it. And so being nimble and responsive, that's really one of the, the great ways that we keep the process moving. The other thing I'll say is things are cheaper nowadays. We have, we have lots of videos we do. We probably do five or six a month. You can do these on your phone. And even the other day, our marketing manager, she was like, I don't need the, the camera, I got my phone. And nowadays that's good enough for, especially if you're just doing uh, social media videos or YouTube videos and not doing it for broadcast. But that's a great example of just start doing it. Just start trying it and see what works. Yeah, and it's dangerous. It's hard. In, in the hands of a lesser leader, that goes awry. And we've all seen that. But uh, but some of these leaders that we've talked to this year, they were well positioned. And I think we can all be thankful that they were in the positions they were in for the people that they. Yeah, absolutely. On the programmatic side, we heard that from Sarah Walter as well at Parent Child Plus when they took their whole program virtual. And because they have this great network and because they have a communication structure in place and have very well-trained partners, they were able to make a quick pivot to virtual programming. And then she drops this information when she was talking about it, about how much better it's made their program and how many more families they're able to serve and how many more families in different languages they're able to serve. And I feel like it really opened up a whole world for them. Here's Sarah Walter talking about that in season four, episode six. Now, if you had asked me, even in January of 2020, could this model, this evidence-based model that's all about relationship building between staff and parents and between parents and children, could this be done 100% virtually? I would have told you, no way. We can't build those kinds of relationships. We didn't even think it was worth testing at that point. And then, yes, in, in mid-March of 2020, our hand got completely forced, but it came out of the learning that, oh, this actually could work virtually, but then that there were families we were just missing because we weren't offering this as an, an alternative method of participating in the program. And part of what we are doing now is with an outside evaluator, really trying to dig into the question of what about virtual visits worked for families? What about it worked for staff? But even more importantly, who were the families it worked so well for and why? And how do we make sure that we are offering multiple ways? for families to engage with the program. One of the really exciting things for us is, so we currently work in 40 different languages across the country, but we're only able in any given community to support families in the language that we've been able to hire staff in that community. But this may mean that the Bengali family in Madison, Wisconsin can get a visit from a Bengali home visitor in San Jose, California because they can do it virtually. That opens a whole world now. Yeah, I guess that's the other factor here, right? Is that these people are, are recognizing that the world has changed and they're not in a hurry to just go back to the way things were before. This is such a thoughtful group of leaders and they're, they're evaluating in the process as they go by as, is this now a better way? Whatever it means, whether it's, we heard from Mark Friedman, who his whole office went virtual and I don't think they're coming back. And he just said, we're actually better this way and we're supporting our people and, and we're getting things done. And Mark's a, a long time leader in the sector. He's been a leader in, in the nonprofit world for 30 years at least. And he just said, we're going to, we're going to adapt to this and we're going to be better as a result of this. And I thought that was really, was really interesting. 
There's a story that I heard in business school that was about, I think it's about Cornelius Vanderbilt, oh. the railroad tycoon. Oh, go being, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pull, pull up a chair to this fireplace. I'm here for the Cornelius story. Let's go. <laughs> Who made tons of money as a railroad baron and was asked to invest in this early technology called airplanes and declined and said, I'm not in the airplane business. I'm in the railroad business. And then that industry grew while the railroads went away as a business because he didn't think big enough about what his organization did. He didn't think he was in the transportation industry. And I think that one of the things I'm starting to hear from a lot of leaders that we're talking to, like David Diaz and Molly Marsh Heine, is really about thinking bigger about the work that you do and the intersectionality of it and how, for David Diaz, thinking about how transportation is a social justice issue and what that means for work opportunities and economic opportunities for a community. And that is, I think, a really exciting development in the industry. Yeah, we heard that from a lot of people, that justice, the anti-racism work, that that kind of thing of providing not just equity, but equality, it runs through everything that they're trying to do. And if you can't, you know, if you can't imbue it into your regular programming, no matter what you do, you're not going to be successful. And so I, I think that's another thing that the nonprofit world is embracing much quicker than the for-profit world is doing, but they're both analyzing it from a, a justice factor, but also from a cost effectiveness cost-benefit analysis of, do we need to put this into our work to do better work, to provide more options, more access, more opportunity for people? And here's Molly Marsh Heine from season four, episode eight. Most importantly, you've got to begin and to do it. I really don't think any organization has an excuse. I don't care if you're the professional golf association or what. Everybody who has an incorporated nonprofit in the United States of America their lives are touched by racism and need to be finding a way to center their work in racial and social equity. I think that all the leaders that we talked to were very thoughtful on that and uh, incorporating how the world has changed and how some people are just not getting the right bite at the apple in any way whatsoever. And it's, it's really an inspiring group of people. I wish I could be more like them. I know. I want to be all our guests when I grow up. They're just good people. And they're not good people in the way that like we think of do-gooders. These are people running multi-million dollar organizations who are cutthroat when it comes to making business decisions. They're strategic. They're smart. They've done all the reading and all the talking and all the thinking. They're inspirational, but they're doing it for the right reasons. And, and they understand the systemic causes that are making their work hard. And, and they're trying to change not only the people that they serve, but those causes that are that are influencing not only their work, but the rest of our lives. So I've been so inspired by the people we've talked to. It's a hard industry to work in. You have fewer resources than any other industry and you have way more to do than any other. They should all be commended and the stuff that they get done is exceptional. Yeah. And they got pain in the butt foundations telling them how to better run their organizations as if we have any idea what we're talking about. And then you have us trying to be like, can you explain to us exactly how you do your job? Thanks. We're going to edit it down. Yes. Yeah. Quick, boil down your 30-year career into one soundbite for me, please. And But most of them do it. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. We are thankful for you for listening. Trent, I'm thankful for you for being part of this and doing such great interviews and, and just lending your expertise at every turn. And we look forward to doing more. I, too, am thankful for this partnership with you. And I'm also thankful for the amazing people in the sector who are doing great work and are willing to give us the time to talk about that work. Here's to a nice holiday season and a better 2022.